you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Exodus. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you. If you're visiting and kind of just checking out Christianity this morning, there's a bookshelf in the foyer that has Bibles and other resources back there. Please check it out. Pick up anything that is of interest to you. It is our gift. We're just really glad that you are here this morning. And uh, this morning, it's kind of bittersweet for me because we are wrapping up Exodus. We started this about a year ago. For me, it's bittersweet. For some of you, as I said, somebody else, it may just be sweet. <laughs> We've been in this book for, for quite a while, but I've really loved this book and just all the beautiful pictures in this book of, of what God is laying out ultimately in Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to be looking at five chapters this morning. So, you know, if you had lunch plans, you may want to cancel them because we're going to know. Just kidding. Uh, a lot of these five chapters are just a repeat of the instructions that we already saw were laid out in chapters 25 to 31 of Exodus, where God was giving the detailed instructions of the construction of the tabernacle and of the garments of the, the priesthood. And now, basically, we've seen the golden calf incident. And now, basically, in chapters 35 through 40, it's just a repetition of all those instructions, but now it's in the construction of these implements, basically, that are going to be part of the tabernacle and part of the priesthood. So if you want details on that, you can listen to some of our previous messages, but basically we're not going to go over those verbatim uh, this morning. I wanted to focus primarily just on the end of this section in chapter 40 this morning, and just a, a little bit of, of background, basically, we have worked through Exodus, and in the beginning of Exodus, we had the people crying out to God, right? They've been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And back in Genesis, when God is reiterating his promise to Abraham, he said to Abraham, basically, your people are going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And he gave him a reason for that. He said, because the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. The Amorites were one of the peoples that are living in the promised land. And so basically, God says to his people, you are going to be in slavery for 400 years because I am being very gracious with these Amorites. I'm giving them an opportunity to turn and to repent and to come to me. But as we've seen, though God is incredibly gracious, he will ultimately execute judgment on those who refuse to turn to him. And so this 400 years has passed. The Amorites, or the ones that are in the land right now, obviously have not turned, and now God has brought his people out of slavery. So his people crying out at the beginning, God, where are you? This apparent lack of God's presence. Now we close this book with basically God's presence coming down right in the midst of his people. And if we've gone through this book, and if you've been here and going through this book, basically we've seen that hasn't always been like a smooth sail towards the end, right? There's been some grumbling and complaining and some massive rebellion along the way. Yet God is still committed to these people that he has chosen and still committed to the promises that he has made to Abraham Isaac and Jacob. So let's pick up, and I'm going to read just a few verses in the beginning of chapter 40 and then towards the end as well. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. 
So this is the first day of the first month. This is about a year after the Exodus. It took them about three months to get to Mount Sinai, and now they've been at Sinai for about nine months. So this is the first day of the first month, and I think that is significant. This is a new start for the people, right? This is God's response to a rebellious people that he exercises grace and mercy towards a lot because of Moses' intercession for this stiff-necked and stubborn people. So it's a new beginning. It's, it's a fresh start. So we're starting here the first day of the first month. And he says, and you shall put it in the ark of the testimony. You shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring it in the temple and arrange it. You shall bring it up the lampstands and set up the lamps, and you shall put the golden altar. And then he goes into the basic details. This is how you set everything up. Verse 16, skipping, this Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. So Moses is following the instructions of the Lord to a T. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses he took the testimony and put it in the ark and put poles in the seat above the ark and he, put, and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he goes through all the things that he sets up here and, and it's repeated over and over. He did everything as the Lord had commanded him. So basically all these aspects of the tabernacle and the fixtures of the tabernacle are built, they're set up, and they're being set up, and this is the first day of the first month. In verse 33, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work, along with a lot of other people, right, that were involved in this, this work. So it's, it's all set up. This whole aspect of the tabernacle and the priesthood is set up. And why did God say he wanted a tabernacle set up? In chapter 25, verse 8, he says, I want you to set up this tabernacle so I can dwell with my people. I want to be with my people. So everything has been set up so that God could be with his people. And over and over, it's emphasized in this section that Moses did exactly what the Lord had asked him to do. Well, then what happened after the work was finished? Verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is a reading of God's word. So here we have the conclusion of this book, basically. Everything is set up. Moses has done everything 
Bezalel and Aholiab have been the craftsmen, and God has given them ability not only to craft things, but as Tim pointed out to me, he's given them ability to teach other people how to craft things. And for a teacher, that's probably important to recognize that God's involved even in that teaching process and encouraging people to then follow your example. But once all this is set up, the cloud descends. And what have we seen about that cloud throughout Exodus? That cloud represents the presence of God, right? The cloud leads them out of Egypt. And over their wanderings before they got to Sinai, there was the cloud by day and the fire by night. And then when they got to Sinai, the cloud settled on the top of the mountain and and Moses went up and Joshua went up and, and the cloud was present there. And now the cloud has moved from the top of Sinai basically onto this tabernacle that has been set up. So what is that a picture of? It's a picture of God's presence now coming and dwelling with his people. Titling this message, God's Portable Presence. Because it's in right a tent, right? This is all designed to be mobile, to be moved. So God is now saying, my presence isn't just located up high on this mountain. My presence is going to go with you, with this tabernacle. This is all set up so that I can be with my people. And that's my first point here, that God desires to be with us despite our stubbornness and despite our failures. It's interesting, as you read through Genesis, you get, or in Exodus, you get all these instructions about building the temple, and then all of a sudden, bam, we run into this wall, and that wall is the golden calf incident, right? The people had just cried out and said, basically, everything that you've said, God, we will do, in chapter 24. Everything you've said, we will do, and we will be obedient. Yeah. In about 40 days, they're breaking probably the first two commandments that God laid down. 40 days. I said, that's like someone basically cheating on their spouse on their honeymoon. That's how quick it happened. So this huge drama is set up in Exodus. What is God going to do now with these people? He rescued them out of Egypt. He's given them basically all these instructions about how they're to relate to him so that he can be in their presence. And then just 40 days after all this is done, they are just departing from his ways, throwing the wedding ring away and saying, man, we're just here to party. So how is God going to respond? And we've seen how God uses Moses and Moses' intersection to to say, this is the kind of God that I am. I am a God who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in unfailing love and faithfulness, forgiving thousands but not clearing the guilty. And so Moses intercedes for the people and God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy him. But Moses says, what? If you don't go with us, I don't want to go, right? And so God says basically, okay, Moses, because of your intercession, I will go with these people. I will be with these people. And here at the end of Exodus, God is fulfilling that promise, saying, I'm here with these people, despite who they are. This is a new start And notice this just isn't a one-time occurrence. God's glory comes down. It's like, wow, but then his glory remains. 
And the glory was so powerful that not even Moses, who'd been up on the mountain, in God's presence could go in. And we see this happening again in the book of Second Chronicles, I think it's chapter 5, where Solomon has built the temple and the temple is dedicated and the glory of the Lord comes down on that temple, basically. And it said that the priests couldn't go in because the presence of God was so potent and powerful there. And that's what's happening here. Some take it as, well, Moses is kind of excluded from this. I don't think that's a negative towards Moses. I think it's saying God's presence is so powerful and potent here that not even Moses, the one that was closest to God, could go in. But then he says, basically, this cloud is going to remain, and it's going to be what guides you. You're about to depart from Sinai. You're going to about to go into the wilderness, so how in the world do you know where you need to go? He says the cloud is going to lift and going to go forward if you need to go, and it, when it stays, you need to stay. And again, to me, this is a picture of the leading and guiding of God in our lives. My question is always, who's driving the car? I like cars. <laughs> I don't like to sit as a passenger in a car. <laughs> I like to drive the car, right? Uh, yet here we see they've got to say, I'm driving the car. I'm telling where to go and when to go. And I think a lot of us struggle with that because we think we know better where we should go and when we should go there, right? We see this even in the beginning of Exodus where the quickest and most direct route to the promised land was a way in which they would encounter opposition from other people. And he knew that the Israelites were not yet ready for that opposition, so he takes them the long route. I think that's how God usually works in our lives, right? There's the short route, the route that we see that makes the most sense, and God says, well, let's go this way, and we'll go this way through the back door, and then ultimately we'll get over to here. And it's like, why in the world are you doing that, God? I think sometimes we know, but as someone has said, oftentimes life is lived forward, but best understood backwards that we don't know exactly why God is doing what he's doing sometimes. And one of the toughest things for all of us, I think, is when that cloud just stays there. And there's difficulty and there's challenges in our lives, and we're like, God, move the cloud, move! I don't want to be here anymore. And God says, no, 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 you, you stay there. Because I've got some things that I need to teach you and it's only in staying and persevering and enduring that I can teach you those things. I mentioned this verse before, it always hits me in Colossians 1 where God prays that we're filled with all his might and power so that we may have patience and endure. And it's like, I always say, you know, that, I hate that. I don't wanna have patience and endure. I wanna bash through any obstacle that's there and take the land. And God says, no, I want you to learn how to be patient and bear up under difficulty and challenges and suffering. And to me, that's one of the lessons of Exodus is just because God's leading us in a particular way doesn't mean that particular way is gonna be easy. There was discomfort along the way. There's times where like, where's the water, God? We don't like this food that you're providing us. I don't. I don't particularly like manna, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You know, some friends took us to Jackson's. We'd never eaten at Jackson's before, and we got a really good steak at Jackson's. And I'm thinking, you know, 27 years into the wanderings, it's like, oh, Lord, one of those steaks would taste pretty good. And it's that manna, manna burgers again. 
It's like, okay, mana helper, you know. <laughs> All these things, like, how many things can you do with mana? But it's, and as God says, okay, I'm here. It's not perfect. It's not exactly what you want, but this is the way that I'm leading you until you ultimately get to that place where it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. But you know, right now we're not there yet. We're still in the wilderness. So now we're in basically on camping rations. MRE type stuff. You military people know how that is. People down here that have lived through hurricanes also had experienced the joy of MREs as well. But the reality is that there are times that we go through and we don't like them, but it doesn't mean that God isn't leading us. If he is leading you in a direction, don't expect that that's always going to be smooth, easy, without difficulties and challenges, because this book teaches me that that's not always the case. In fact, God, I think, is more concerned with our growing up and our developing maturity and strength in our faith than giving us a comfortable life. Whereas we usually just want a comfortable life, right? But God has provided everything these people need. He's given them freedom from the slavery in Egypt. He's led them through the desert. And right before, remember when they crossed through the Red Sea, God basically said to the people, stand still and wait and see the salvation that I'm gonna bring. It's not their work. It's not because these people were anything, and over and over we'll see, basically throughout the whole Old Testament, that these people are stiff-necked, they're stubborn, they're stupid just like us. And God is gracious with these people, and despite that aspect of their nature, he wants to be with them. We grumble and complain where God is calling us to trust and wait. God is good and he is faithful, but he works on a different time scale than most of us. 400 years waiting for the sin of the Amorites to be full while his people were enduring difficulty. To me, as we walk through life, as long as God is offering grace to people that don't yet know him, there is the very real potential that we will be hurt. Why? Because people are sinful and people do sinful things and we get hurt. But God is with us even in the midst of that hurt. God has rescued us primarily not for our comfort but for our relationship with him. And the paradoxical thing is that sometimes in the most difficult, challenging times, that's the time where our relationship with God grows the most. Spend some time with some older, mature saints and ask them, hey, when, when did you find your faith really solidifying and becoming strong and vibrant? And it's often, oh man, it was the time when we lost our child. Or it was the time when I got that cancer diagnosis. Or it was the time when, and it's usually not, yeah, it was the time when I got the raise and got the new house and everything was, no, it's those times where I learned God's faithful, even though I'm walking through the very shadow of death, God is with me and his rod and staff are there and I can trust him in the midst of that so I can trust him all the time. So God rescues us. He's rescued these people for relationship. He wants to be with them. Do you have an understanding that God wants to be with you? Despite your sin, that he wants to be with you. To me, that's one of the lessons of this book. He wants to be, I don't understand that. (laughs) 
but that's his desire. So God's desire is to be with us. And the second thing here is that God is both awesome and available. You see this here as the cloud comes down, right? His presence is so powerful that nobody can go near him, right? This is an awesome God. Hebrews 12 tells us that when the cloud was on the mountain, even Moses was trembling, right? The people hear God speak and they're like, don't let him speak to us anymore, right? Moses, you do the talking for us to him and as long as we're at a safe distance, we're okay. There's a cloud, there's glory, there's thunder, there's lightning. This is the God of the plagues that took down one after the other, the gods of Egypt, showing that he was superior in every way, who parted the Red Sea, who took down the most powerful nation in that part of the world at that time. He is ultimately a powerful, holy God who will judge. And we don't like to hear that in our day and age. We want a Santa Claus God, right? Oh, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. Whatever. But we see that this is not a whatever God. It's a God that wants us in relationship with him, but the way we enter into relationship with him is the way he dictates. And we see all these specifics laid out. This is how you enable me to dwell in your presence. There's this tabernacle, all that stuff, all that is so that I can dwell with you. You don't just waltz into my presence, right? But God is also very available. We see that here in this cloud that leads and guides and directs. He's not a God that's distant, but he's not a God to be trifled with either. When we approach him in the way that he's designed us to approach him, there is access for all of us. And to me, one of the things as I've read through this book that has struck me, because so many people think that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. But what I've realized in reading through Exodus is that the God of the Old Testament is much more gracious and compassionate than, than I think we often think of. And I think Jesus is often portrayed in a way that he's not that serious about stuff either. But you look at Jesus and... There's times where he gets angry and he clears the temple because people were hindering others from coming into God's presence. There's times where he calls out the religious leaders that are keeping God's people away, that are honoring him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And he says, woe to you, you vipers. Not kind words of, hey, it's all good. Whatever you want to do today, that's cool with me. And then when he calls a rich man that's loaded up his barns with all sorts of stuff and he said, man, you're a fool. Because this very night, your life is gonna be demanded. And he's the Jesus that says, man, don't fear those that can kill the body. That's just physical death. But fear the one that can destroy body and soul in hell. That's the one you should fear. So it's not like Jesus is just meek and mild and whatever goes and the God of the Old Testament is angry all the time. But to me, this God is holy and he needs to be approached in the way that he has said we approach him. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's who he is, yes, but he will also not clear the guilty. 
And so here the book ends with Moses outside and then we move right into Leviticus. How do we stay in God's presence while the whole sacrificial system is instituted? So we enter into God's presence by way of sacrifice. And we know from reading the rest of the story that the ultimate sacrifice is Jesus Christ. And we come by way of him into the presence of God. So the God of the Old Testament is gracious even with rebels. Even with times where he executes judgment strongly and we saw that after the rebellion of the golden calf that come down and 3,000 of the people were killed after that rebellion. But before that happened, what did God say? All who are with me, come over here. And so the people had an opportunity to turn from that golden calf and go to him, but when they didn't, then there was judgment. We will one day stand before a holy and just and righteous God, and we will give account for every word that has left our mouths. And I don't know about you, but without Jesus, that would scare me to death because there's been a lot of words that have come out of this mouth that are not God-honoring and useful for building up and encouraging other people. But thank God that even for rebels, he gives that opportunity. Come on, come back, turn, repent, come to me. And when we do, we are not subject to his justice that he meets out at that point in time. So God is both awesome, but he is also available. But we need to come in the way that he has told us we need to come. And over and over in this book, it's like Moses did everything like the Lord said. He did this exactly according to the plan that he'd seen. And so all this is designed and laid out in that way. And God says, this is how I am to be approached at this time in history by this people. Another thing that I've seen in this book is that knowing the law and having good intentions, even about obeying the law, it's not enough. As I mentioned before in chapter 24, when the people are ratifying this covenant, he said, everything that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. And then they repeated, everything God's spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They add that on the end there. That's really good attitude, right? I love, it's like, we're in this, we're in this 100%. Until... It's 40 days and we don't know where Moses is and we're out in the middle of the desert and we don't know what to do so we need another God. So where's our God? Aaron, make us a God. And Aaron makes him a God. And Aaron is the designated priest. The one should know better. The one that Moses left behind and said, Aaron, if you got a question, go to Aaron. They go to Aaron and where's Aaron? Okay, I guess I'll make a calf. To me, you look, and you look even at the, the priesthood, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they do it wrong, and God has to take them out. So far, in the Old Testament, there are two priests that are noble. One is Melchizedek, right? Not even a Jew. And the other is Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who's probably a descendant of Abraham that probably knows the real God. And those are the guys that are lifted up. You look at the priesthood in Israel, and it's like, man, these guys... Mm, I don't know what that says about pastors today, but you know, I'm just going to let you take that and use it as you will. But the reality is the system of law, I think God from the very start is showing us it's not enough to have all the commands of God, even heard from the very mouth of God. It's not enough because for us, right? 
And when life gets difficult and when we think there's an easier way or we need to have something now or pleasure pushes on us, we're like, ah, oh, I guess I'll have that. We see in this book the need that we have for an intercessor. And in this book we have Moses, right? He's the intercessor for the people. God's like, I'm fed up with these people. And Moses says, remember your promises. Yeah, these are your people too. <laughs> I know they're a pain, I know they're stiff-necked. And he intercedes and he intercedes and he intercedes. And I think God is allowing that to happen so it's a picture of an ultimate intercessor that's coming down the road. And I think we also need to recognize as we go through this book that our real guilt needs to be somehow covered. Remember when we were, Moses was interceding and he said, basically, let me make atonement for these people. And God says, ain't possible, Moses. You can't make atonement for these people. They're all gonna basically bear their own guilt. Moses has said later on in Deuteronomy 18 that there's another prophet coming. And that's the prophet that you all need to listen to. So even in this first five books that are the law, the law is saying basically this is not enough, there needs to be more. And then you get into the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Ezekiel 36 and says this is the problem. The problem isn't with the law, the problem is with your heart. You're stubborn, you're rebellious, you're hard-hearted. But you know what? There's a day coming where God will turn that heart around. Because our problem is not external. It's not that, oh, I didn't know that law exactly. The problem is internal. And it's not that the problem is outside. Well, the circumstances were so difficult. No, the problem starts inside. But we live in a world where usually we like to point at the problems outside. Well, I did that because of this. Well, things are tough, so I had to do this. And this book lets me know even in the beginning here that this is not the ultimate design for God's people. That there's something more that needs to come. That this system of law, it's not bad, but you know what, something better is needed. And it's not needed because what God has laid out here is wrong, it's needed because we don't have the ability to fulfill this kind of stuff. When we're left to our own devices, we always head in the wrong direction. And even in when we head in the right direction, we may head in the right direction for the wrong motivation. We see this in many of the leaders. They say, man, these people, they're saying all the right words. They're doing all the right external deeds, but their hearts are far from me. He says, you Pharisees, man, you're tithing even of your herb garden. That's okay, fine, but there's justice and there's mercy and there's bigger things that you've totally neglected that are near to my heart. So what you guys need is a heart transplant. And to me, as we look at the law, Paul tells us one of the purposes of the law is to bring us like a tutor brings us to Christ. And to me, that's one of the beauties of looking and reading through the Old Testament is you see all these pictures and types and foreshadowings of, of Jesus, right? 
And I think it's often true what they say. You know, if you ask a question in Sunday school class, just if you don't know, just say Jesus, right? That's usually the right answer. But here you have this, yep. And I think that's really true. We look at Exodus, and, and to me, you look at all these things are ultimately fulfilled and perfectly fulfilled in Christ. John 1.14, the word became flesh, and most translations say dwelt. Literally, it's tented or tabernacled among us. We beheld the glory, the glory of the one and only. We've seen the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians, the glory of God is reflected in what? The face of Christ. So we as people have this incredible privilege that Moses didn't even have to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Christ is our ultimate rescuer. In Luke 9, after the transfiguration or in the midst of it, he's speaking with Moses and Elijah and he's speaking about what? His exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. He uses that very word. He's speaking about his exodus. So Jesus is the ultimate Moses that's gonna bring about the deliverance of his people from our slavery to sin in Jerusalem. How? By his cross. He's the ultimate rescuer. He's the ultimate Passover lamb. We saw that Passover instituted early on in God covering basically the households that applied the blood and Jesus being the ultimate Passover lamb that allows God's justice to pass by. John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You think it's a coincidence that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross took place during Passover week. No, all these pictures are connected in the beauty of God's book here. This is a big story that's leading and pointing all to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate tabernacle or temple, right? Jesus said what? Destroy this temple. I'm gonna rebuild it in three days. What was he saying? My body is the temple. My body is the locus of God's presence on this planet. We have an ability to see the face of God in Jesus Christ. He is God's presence among us. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. Not a high priest like Aaron, but a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, the author of Hebrews says. A much better priest. He is the ultimate mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, we have one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. He's the only one that perfectly can mediate between God and man because he is God and he is fully man as well. He knows exactly what it means to walk on this broken planet to experience the difficulties and challenges that we experience and represent us before a holy God. To be gracious and compassionate and say to the Father, man, I know what they're made of because I was made of the same stuff. Have mercy on them. He's the ultimate intercessor. Hebrews 7.25 He always lives or he lives forever to make intercession for us. We're stubborn, we're stiff-necked, we are. And Jesus, like Moses, is up there saying, be merciful, look at my sacrifice, I've paid the price for these people. Let's make them into what we have designed them to be, 
Don't abandon them. And God listens to this mediation from his perfect son and his son's intercession. And he is, Jesus, the ultimate presence of God with us. What do we celebrate at Christmas? What? Emmanuel. God distant from us? No, God with us. Moses said in chapter 33, God, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. There's no point because what's going to distinguish us from every other nation if you just send us on our way and you're not with us? And here now we have this amazing, amazing gift of the Holy Spirit that the New Testament calls the Spirit of Christ as well that resides in us, God with us, God in us. When Jesus is talking to his disciples about his departure, and he says basically that the Spirit was with you and it will be in you. Post-Pentecost, those of us who have trusted Christ are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. To me, that's what enables me to be something different. It's not a lack of information. It's not that I don't know the law well enough. I think God's written a moral law in all people's hearts. It's that we don't have the ability to carry that out consistently. So he says in this beauty of the new covenant, not only am I gonna take care of your sins, but I'm gonna then dwell in you, give you a new heart, empower you to be the kind of people that I'm calling you to be. Because if I'm just left with a whole bunch of rules and regulations, that doesn't help me at all. I failed from the get-go, starting way back in my life. But God says, you know what? I know you're stiff-necked and stubborn, so I'm gonna have to change you from the inside out. I'm gonna have to begin to work on that heart. And God, by his grace and in his patience, does that with all of us who trust him. And we walk with him, and it's not instantaneous, but my prayer is that God's spirit is working in you, changing you slowly over time so that more and more you demonstrate the character of God, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control. That's the stuff that God is about and wants us to be about. And we can't gin that up in our lives. We can do it for a little while in the right circumstances. But for the duration, I don't think any of us have that without the power of the Holy Spirit residing in us. That's why every day we go to God and say, give us today our daily bread. What is our daily bread? Jesus, the presence of Christ with us. That's what I need most today, the filling of his Holy Spirit. We live under a new covenant. And the author of Hebrews says, it's a better covenant. Turn, if you would, to the book of Hebrews. I want to just read a portion of chapter 12 to close here. talking about what went on back in Sinai. Verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 12 says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, that is all of us 
in the new covenant have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings. This is a feast and a festival and a party that is going on. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to the God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel that just cried out for justice, but now Jesus' blood has provided justice. That's where we come. We come to a heavenly Jerusalem, to the presence of God, and there we encounter all other believers who have been made righteous, what, by the work of Jesus Christ, and what's happening there? They're not terrified. There's a place of joy and festivities going on. But like Exodus, we need to take this God seriously. Because verse 25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. God is a holy and righteous God, but he is a God that wants to be present with us. And all these pictures in Exodus point to Jesus Christ as the means by which we can enter into the presence of God and experience that presence. But you know what? That presence has to be accepted. The New Testament talks about repenting, turning from the way in which we're going, having a change of mind and embracing Jesus Christ in trust. Saying, I'm gonna follow you. I'm gonna look to you for the forgiveness of my sins. I acknowledge that I'm a rebel. I acknowledge that I am stiff-necked. I acknowledge that so often I wanna be my own God and I think I'm smarter than you. But would you have someone like me? And when we come with a repentant heart, God says, yes, I will have someone like you. And you know, not only will I have you, I will rejoice in having you. And I will plant my spirit in you so that I will begin this process of transforming you and making you into something that you could never be on your own. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a right spirit within you. So I don't know where you are this morning in your relationship with God. But I want to let you know that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, willing to forgive any and all sins. But I also want to let you know that we've got to embrace that. We've got to turn to him. We've got to repent of going the way we're going, and we've got to turn and trust in Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we no longer will be judged by God. But if we walk in our own way and say, I don't need that, one day we will stand before a holy and righteous God. And the author of Hebrews says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So if you sense the Holy Spirit speaking to your heart this morning, you have not accepted Christ, you have not trusted Christ, you have not turned from the way you are going, I urge you to do that. And then please talk to somebody about that decision. Because God wants to be present with us. But we only come in the way that he has designated. And what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But all who go through him experience the grace of God, adoption into God's family, and eternity with God, purpose and meaning while we're here, and ultimately we're still in the wilderness, but there's a promised land that's waiting for us where heaven and earth come together 
where God's spirit is among us. And in the book of Revelation, we see John encountering the risen Christ in his glory. And John what, falls down as if dead and God raised him. Come, come on, <laughs> this is who I am, but this is what I've prepared. I've prepared this city that comes to earth and the city is a perfect cube. What else is a perfect cube in the Old Testament? The holy of holies that we see in Exodus that represents what? The very presence of God. So we can live in the very presence of God. That's what God wanted from the beginning all the way to the garden and it's what he's gonna accomplish in the end. And sometimes we cry out, God, where are you? And he says, I want to be with you. But how I'm with you is through Jesus Christ. Have you trusted in him? He's my way. I pray that you have this morning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book and all the lessons that it can teach us about who you are, but also about who we are and our need for you. I pray that your spirit would be working on each and every heart here, mine included, that you would draw us near to you, that we would recognize that you want to be with us and that Jesus died to make that reality a possibility. Lord, we ask that we would yield more and more to you, that we would be responsive to your spirit, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, that as individuals and as your church, we would truly reflect you to the world around us. Lord, transform us, draw us near, Help us, Lord, to seek you and your kingdom with all we've got and to love you, Lord, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, with all our minds so that we can be your people in this world for your glory and for your honor. And it's in Jesus' powerful and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen.